This is React Podcast. I'm Chantastic. Today, we sit down with Max Stoiber and learn what it takes to find luck in open source. Max is the creator of React Boilerplate and the co-creator of Styled Components and Spectrum.chat. So if there's anyone that knows this topic well, it's Max. Let's get to it. Max, welcome to React Podcast. Thank you for having me. I'm so excited <laughs> to be here. I'm so excited to get to talk to you again. <laughs> so uh, so this is a repeat for, for us. We recorded an episode, I think it was a year ago. Was it? It was like last January yeah, or it's December? Yeah, it's been a minute. <laughs> it's been a minute. Um, we recorded and it was great. And I was so excited to share our conversation. And uh the uh, the the wave files were corrupted, and we we didn't have any backup to go off of. And I was I was like morose. I was like <laughs> so sad. <laughs> me, me too. Although we did have a great conversation, so that was lovely. Except nobody ever got to hear it. So, <laughs> <laughs> but you know, now we're just gonna have a better one. I I enjoyed talking right. with you, regardless. So, for those who are not familiar with you. Uh, which would be hard for me to imagine, but let's assume that there's people listening to this show that don't know who you are and what you're doing. Tell us, like, what are you doing? What what are you what are you about these days? Uh, how do you fill your time with um, with programming and community and all that stuff? Hi, I'm Max. Um, I am at MXSTBR basically everywhere on the internet, and I am most well known for creating React boilerplate and style components. Um, if you're in the React ecosystem, you've probably at least heard of one of those projects, um, and I created both of them. Uh, and right now, as, as we're recording this, I'm still working at GitHub after they acquired my previous company called Spectrum, where we built a community platform for open source projects in the broadest sense of the word. And later this month, uh, so by the time this episode airs, I'm going to be working at Gatsby, uh, where I'm going to be working on blocks and Gatsby themes. Sweet, sweet. Now you've had you've had a very like enviable uh, career. I've always, I, I was amazed at how just fast you kind of like came onto the scene, gained traction, and how your libraries have have repeatedly or libraries and products have repeatedly been a success. Is there something that you kind of attribute that to? Is there a part of your your history or education that you feel has put you maybe a ahead of the rest in terms of uh, success in open source and product? Uh, yeah, lots of luck and privilege. <laughs> <laughs> I just got really lucky like a hundred times in a row. I think the biggest thing that I did right is I put myself in luck's way. I put myself into a position where I could get lucky and I just kept putting myself in that position until I actually got lucky, um, <laughs> if that makes any sense. so Yeah, yeah. What were some of the early places that you like kind of put yourself as a stumbling block to luck? The first thing that really sort of set off my career was React Boilerplate. Um, in it, I started React Boilerplate just for myself at in like twenty at the beginning of twenty fifteen, and uh -huh. I was essentially essentially just fed up with doing the same Webpack setup, the same <laughs> folder structure, the same setup every single time for my React projects. And at the time, I was yeah. working with a bunch of agencies and freelance, and so I, I was constantly creating greenfield React projects. And it was constantly yeah. the exact same setup. Nowadays, you would just use Create React App. Spending a lot of time on uh, the Webpack docs and exactly. like trying to remember, like, how do I actually configure this exactly. thing? And like yeah. copying, pasting stuff across from old projects and like merging it together because I made it do a little bit the last time, but then that didn't quite work. And it was really annoying. And so I just essentially created a folder structure in the, in the Webpack configuration and I pushed it up to my GitHub for me to use in future projects. And I kept improving it. I kept adding on to it. I kept add, like trying different tools and sort of using the best ones and putting them in the boilerplate. And then I distinctly remember on the 27th of December, 2015, so a couple of days after Christmas, I was out skiing with my family uh, in Austria. We go skiing every Christmas. And I wake up one morning and I just check my my phone and I see that React Boilerplate went from, I think, about 50 stars to 500 stars overnight. <laughs> and I literally went, what? What is happening? Why do I suddenly have 500 stars? And I had no idea what, what yeah. was going on. And so there's actually a tweet of me from 2015 where I literally asked Twitter, hey, my project just went 
10x on the stars and I have no idea why. Does anybody know what's happening? Because <laughs> at the time I didn't know that, that you could see that indicator about analytics. But um, eventually, like three hours later, somebody replied, yeah, you're on the front page of Hacker News. And I was like, cool, <laughs> what's Hacker News? <laughs> and then I went on Hacker News and I was actually on the front page and I stayed on the front page. So React Wildplay stayed on the front page of Hacker News for practically the entire day. Um, it garnered a bunch of hundreds of upvotes. Wow. And um, after... After that, that whole wave stopped, I think it ended up with 2,000 or 3,000 stars on GitHub. That is wild. Where are you at now? Well, I think Greg Power Plates at 25 or 26,000. Oh my gosh. Wild. Um, and Style Components at 27 or 28. So that's the first time I really got lucky. Like it, That was pure luck. I, I didn't post it on Hacker News. I didn't intend for it to be posted on Hacker News. I didn't even know what that is. Right? <laughs> Somebody just thought that it was cool enough to be posted on Hacker News. And for some reason, Hacker News agreed just by pure chance. And that really kickstarted my career. I essentially took that wave and I went with it. And um, that's actually when I dropped out of university for the first time. So wow. that success happened because I just graduated high school the, the year before and that success happened. And I was like, well, actually, no, sorry. That was the second time. Because the first time was the year before when, when I got my first job. That was it. Sorry. It was the second time I dropped out of university. Um, and I knew like with 3,000 stars, I could turn this into something, either a job or yeah. into like... Maybe I could get donations or I could somehow do ads or like I, I knew there would be a way for me to figure out to sort of live off of that, right? In the broadest sense yeah. of the word. What, what were you studying at the time? I was studying computer science. So I, after I graduated high school in 2014, um, I immediately started studying computer science, but really didn't enjoy it. Um, I yeah. could do like a very basic HTML and CSS and a little bit of JavaScript. And I felt like the stuff that they were teaching me wasn't particularly relevant to what I wanted to be doing, which is building websites. I was learning a ton, a ton about like calculating with binary numbers and like <laughs> math and stuff. I really didn't need to make beautiful websites and I felt like it was a waste of time. And so I actually got an internship in London at a company called Animate at the beginning of 2015, um, which was also by pure luck actually, because I only saw that ad for their internship on Twitter, just randomly, like it just randomly popped. I knew nobody from that company Fascinating. and somehow it popped into my feed. And so I applied and for some reason I got the internship. And so that was the first time I dropped out of university to go to that internship. So you're kind of stuck between like, you got university, you're studying like kind of old computer science uh, ways, but then you're in this like new world where you, you put up some open source project, you're kind of getting a lot of traction, a lot of social media buzz, and that's creating job opportunities for you and uh, kind of like opportunities in open source and just interest around you. And so you're like, screw this. I got, I got me. I don't need, <laughs> I don't need a computer <laughs> Kinda, yeah. science degree. <laughs> it was an interesting, it was an interesting um, dichotomy. The, the first time around that I dropped out for the internship in London where I was for three months afterwards, I was like, okay, I've done an internship. Like they taught me the basics of HTML and CSS. And they also taught me React. That's actually how I got into React. After two months, they were like, well, we've taught you HTML and CSS. What do you want to learn next? I was like, uh, I don't know. What is there to learn? Interesting. They were like, well, <laughs> there's this cool new thing called React that we've been meaning to use, but haven't had the time to try. Why don't you try it and tell us what you think? <laughs> That's actually why I got into React. Dude, that is luck. That's amazing. That is even more luck. because um, That's wild. Nobody, like this is the end of... No, sorry, beginning of 2015. So like React is nothing, right? Like it was yeah, literally yeah, yeah. just released for a year or two and nobody was using it yet. So that's actually, that's a good point. Yeah, that, that's the next lucky thing. And so then I get into React and I'm like, okay, I know React, I know HTML and CSS. I'm sure I can get a job. And I go back to Vienna and I try to get a job in Vienna and nobody wants to hire me or they want to hire me for like no money, right? Like they're like, oh, this is a student. Like we're just going to hire him for no money. I'm like, <laughs> I know that front-end developers get paid a lot more than you're willing to pay me. <laughs> And I know that I have the skills, so I'm not going to take this job because I feel like I'm not valued here. Um, which is, again, I was in a super privileged position to not have to make money, right? Like, again, yeah. lots of luck and privilege. And so I try to find a job. And after, you know, many months, I still don't have a job. So I, I, I go, okay, maybe I do need to study computer science. And I re-enroll in university to study computer science. And then two months later, React Boilerplate explodes. And I'm like, okay. Like, there's something here. I'm just going to not do university anymore and focus on open source or getting a job. My parents were not happy at all. They were super pissed. <laughs> I, can't, I can't imagine <laughs> that they were. Yeah. <laughs> so I, I know that you gave a talk. I think it was React Rally maybe two years ago. Um, I think it was React Rally. It, they all kind of blend together after yeah. a while. But you gave a talk about open source and how 
there's this this kind of lore i guess of like open source and like there's this idea of like what it should be and like how important your projects need to be and you kind of tore that down and talked about how really open source is about solving your repeated problems in a way that helps you and if it helps someone else great and it sounds like react boilerplate was kind of in that space for you exactly you're like hey i've done this like 500 times I'm just going to open source this so I don't have to do it again. And, uh, you know, if it helps somebody else, that's great. That's it. That's where most of my open source projects come from. Um, it's it's a little bit funny when people come to me and they say, I want to do open source, but I'm not sure what to do. I'm like, just solve your own problem. Like, <laughs> what you're doing all day long as developers is solving problems. Yeah. And open source is nothing but packaged solutions for specific problems. That's really what it is. People using your pre-made solution when they have the same problem. So the way I think about it is every time I solve whatever problem I have, I think about, can I open source this? And of course, not everything is open sourceable, right? Sure. If you're like moving stuff around in your nav bar, you can't really open source that patch, right? <laughs> like there's, there's a lot of work that can't be open sourced. However, there is a lot more work that can be open sourced than people realize. Um, well, that's, most of the time, that's just tiny libraries. Mm -hmm. It ends up being like a hundred lines of code. It's a thing where, you know, whatever, like you add padding to a string, left pad, or, <laughs> you know, just ridiculous tiny utilities that you just end up using and coding for yourself. Just open source them. There's no downside, right? The worst thing that can happen is that you now have a reusable solution for yourself the next time that you have the same problem. Mm-hmm. And the best case scenario is that other people start using it and you get recognized for having created that project. So there's no downside and potentially huge upside if you get lucky, <laughs> which kind of seems like an absolute no-brainer, right? Like why wouldn't yeah. you do something that has no risk but potentially a huge payout? That's like investing in stocks, except if the stocks go down, you get your money back. Like there's, <laughs> of course you would invest in stocks because there's no risk. Yeah. Now, so one thing that it, it seems like people are often concerned about is like, oh, there's already a package that, that that does this. Like, so what do you say to people who are interested in open source, but feel like everything's already saturated? Like there's already a package that does everything. So like, why would I add, add something else to the mix? Are you writing any code in your app? <laughs> if you're writing any code, then you're not using a package for it. So you can open source it. <laughs> I like that. I like that. If we're still writing code. Yeah, if you're still writing code, then there's still lots of space for libraries to be created, right? And, you know, oftentimes, I'm not saying that many of them will be totally reusable projects like React Boilerplate, right? Often you'll open source things like your component library, your design system. Yep. You're, you're going to open source the, whatever, documentation page for your design system, right? Like that's not necessarily reusable. It can still be open source and it can still gain a lot mm -hmm. of traction, right? Yeah, I think there's something something to be said, too, in that open source, a lot of times is just taking part in a conversation. And I think that design, open sourcing your design system is a good uh, illustration of that. You know, there's like 10,000 design systems, and they're like very, like, very minimally a lot of the times. But those are all points in a conversation that allow us all to move together collectively and have the next versions of those things have the benefit of you know these people's findings and you know what these people learned and you know as we as we share what we're learning uh we get the benefit of, benefit of that in our code and like open source is almost like just kind of like a like cost of entry to be able to take part in that conversation in a more meaningful way yeah i i absolutely agree you're absolutely right i i, I don't think all open source has to be or, or every open source project has to be a library or a framework. You're, you're not going to create the next React, right? Like that's just <laughs> an unrealistic expectation. But what you can do is open source. Yeah, just like I did. Yeah. So you, um, so you've you've dropped out of uh, university for the second time, and uh, you're you're going whole hog. You've disappointed your parents, and uh, you're like, hey, I'm going to do this programming thing. What's the like? What's what's the next step? What's the next thing that happened? I. That's a good question. I created React Boilerplate, it got really famous, and then I pivoted that into mostly consulting jobs. I took the popularity that React Boilerplate had gained mm -hmm. to essentially convince clients that I was a good programmer, right? I would essentially go, hey, hire me because I created a popular open source project, so I know what <laughs> I'm doing. Yeah, yeah. You were able to use it as leverage, like bargaining power. Exactly, a little bit. And 
that introduced me to lots of people in the local ecosystem. Uh, so I started going to React Vienna meetups and meeting lots of people there, which in turn led me to meet Nick Graf, which is one of my best friends here in, in Vienna. Um, also a very uh, big open source author in his own right. And he invited me to come to Jackson Hole with him for skiing because we were both big skiers and he was going to Jackson Hole with some Austrian friends. And so we went skiing for a week there. Um, and afterwards, he at the time was at Stripe. He had gotten their open source fellowship uh, oh, cool. uh, thing. And so he was in, in San Francisco for three months working on open source full time at Stripe. And so he invited me down to San Francisco for another week so I could hang out and um, just meet people in San Francisco and be in San Francisco because it's San Francisco. It's where everybody is. Everybody's there. And I go to San Francisco. And as I'm flying there, I realized that ReactConf was in San Francisco in February, the, the time I was there. However, the first day of ReactConf was on the day I was scheduled to fly out. I'd literally <laughs> not known and scheduled it so oh, badly no. <laughs> that I was flying back to Vienna on the day that ReactConf was. <laughs> Which is really bad. If you're gonna do that, just stay for ReactConf, right? Like it's an awesome yeah, yeah, conference. Yeah, yeah. You and you're gonna meet you lots of people. Just missed it. So yeah, I just missed it. Um, so I tried to make the best of it, and I like pinged a ton of people before and about you know wh when are they gonna come in and like can we hang out and can we like you know grab coffee or whatever so I could meet the, the most people I could. And then Nick said one of his his uh, acquaintances, one of his friends, Jed Watson, was flying in from Sydney to give a talk, and. Jed Watson is the author of React Select and Keystone.js and also a bunch of other open source packages. And so he's like, Nick's like, okay, I'm going to meet Jed at this Mexican reader place. Why don't you come join us and hang out? And so I go there and I start talking to Jed and Jed's super nice. Jed's a great guy. If you ever meet Jed, say hi from me because he's awesome. Terrific guy. And so I, I get talking with Jed and I we're talking about how about open source and how Nick got this open source fellowship at Stripe. And then I said something to the effect of, it's so awesome that he got it. I would love to work on open source full time for a couple of months. <laughs> and Jed goes, well, why don't you join my company and work on open source full time? <laughs> and I went. People who want to work on open source is like catnip for Jed. Yeah, yeah, exactly. He's like, he's picking <laughs> them up from everywhere. Yeah, <laughs> Jed's like looking for those kinds of people. And so he's like, I, I run a consultancy in Sydney. Why don't you, why don't you join the company more or less and we'll just pay you to work on open source and maintain Keystone.js which is our, our in-house CMS so that's how I got my first actual job that was my first real job where I was employed um, working for ThinkMill on open source which was awesome I, I, I cannot thank Jed enough for, for giving me that opportunity again yeah. I got super lucky I, I met a guy who invited me to go skiing for reasons I don't I don't know I have no <laughs> like we didn't even know each other that well but he was like you like skiing I like skiing why don't you join which was super nice of Nick. <laughs> and then he's like, you can come to San Francisco too. And so I flew to San Francisco. And just by random chance, one of the like 50 people I met that week was Jed. And he just happened to feel like it was a great idea to hire somebody to work on their open source CMS. Awesome. Again, hugely lucky, right? Like I just got super lucky. Yeah, and then I joined ThinkMill, which is Jed's company. Um, and I was hired to work on Keystone.js. But I, I did work on Keystone.js a bunch. But that's also when I met Glenn Mattern, who is the creator of CSS modules, because I was down in Sydney, because they're, they're based in Sydney, and so I flew down to, to Australia, because who would turn down an invitation to fly to Australia? Like, <laughs> you'd have to be, I don't know, not very smart to turn that down. <laughs> and so I flew to Sydney, I hang, I, I hang out with Jed a bunch, and then Glenn Mattern, who is the creator of CSS modules, also comes to Sydney. He lives in Melbourne, so it's not that far away for him. And Jed knows Glenn, and so they go to a whiskey bar, and he says, I, I should join. And so we go to this... I'll never forget this place. It's like this super hidden, like you have to walk down some set of stairs into the cellar and it's not even marked on the outside. You just walk in and it's like a Chinese whiskey bar. <laughs> yes. and they have like the best whiskey in Sydney. <laughs> yes. But you, you, you wouldn't know that there's a bar in there unless you knew it was there. And it's like this really, it's, it's, it's like this red themed, like all the light is red. It's really dark. I, I, and I walk in and Glenn is sitting there and I'm like, hey, Glenn, it's nice to meet you. I'm super excited. I love CSS modules. And so we get talking about CSS and Next thing I know, we're talking about CSS and JS because at the time that was starting to sort of grow in popularity. Yeah. And Glenn's like, yeah, I like CSS and JS, but I hate writing CSS as objects. And I wish somebody made a CSS and JS library that let me just write CSS how I'm used to. And I'm like, yeah, that sounds kind of like a good idea. Why don't we make that happen? <laughs> and so the next day when we're less drunk, we, we meet in, in, in the ThinkBill office um, 
and start did I and then start working on what what that could look like and start sketching out sort of different APIs that could work or how we we're going to do this. And that's really how Style Components was invented. We just sat there and tried a bunch of different APIs. And then we stumbled upon, I don't even know how, like with 15 steps in between, we stumbled upon what the Style Components API looks like now. So if you if you know like the classic Style Components API of style.diff or style.p or whatever, like that classic tag template literal Style Components API, we stumbled upon that and Glenn built the first prototype of it that just was super hacky, but it worked. And we used it for like five minutes, looked at each other and went, this is it. <laughs> like, this is an amazing developer experience. Like, we love working like this. And that API, then we announced the style components and then that took off. That's a different story. But so, yeah. Yeah, I feel like that was, uh, that was really kind of the mark of when CSS and JS type stuff really started to to shift, right? And I feel like that was the first time that we'd, we'd seen that API um, and then that started to make its way into other libraries. And then like, I think like Emotion, maybe like a year or so later, kind of like came up on the scene and kind of brought some performance gains to to that idea, um, which it, as far as I understand of like largely kind of style components has largely come to parity with. And um, it feels like that was kind of the moment where everything started to change a little bit in that space. And we started to have like much better conversations about what this would actually look like instead of just objects um, on on JSX. Yeah, um, there, there's another sort of strang of history here where I used React Boilerplate um, and that, that's, that, that was another one of Nick's genius suggestions. Um, Nick essentially told me that I could use the open source project to start speaking at conferences and to sort of present myself as an expert on React. Initially, that was to get recognition as sort of an expert on React, really to get clients because sure. at the time I was still working as a consultant and a yeah. freelancer. And so I sent in, I literally looked up every single programming conference that had anything to do with JavaScript. <laughs> and I sent in the same proposal for a, a talk about React Boilerplate and sort of architecting large React applications, I think is what the title is. And I sent, I'm, I must have sent like 75 or 100 CFPs. Yeah. Literally. And I thought I would send 75 and 100 and one would accept me. But like 40 accepted me. <laughs> and so suddenly I was a speaker, or maybe not 40, maybe 30. 25 to 30, I would guess. Literally. And so suddenly I was a speaker going to 25 conferences, <laughs> which, which didn't make any sense at all. Like, why would anybody fly me around the world to give a talk about something where I really feel like I have absolutely no idea what I'm talking about? Well, if you picked this title with the right buzzwords, right? Yeah, everyone exactly, was, exactly. Everyone was clamoring for that information at the time. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I, I, I picked a good title and a good description. Uh, and I hope an okay talk. But so that's a different strand of history, right? Where, where I did the... I did all of the conferences. And so what happened with Style Components was that by then I'd already given like two dozen conference talks. And I was a well-known uh, speaker that conferences would just reach out to, right? Like I didn't have to submit CFPs anymore. Yeah. But conference organizers look at all of the different conferences, right? And they look at all of the different talks and then they sort of contact the speakers that they like best to say, hey, sure. why don't you come to my conference? And then they also do a CFP. And so I started being on that, on that list of people that they would reach out to. And so I used that to actually talk about style components. And so instead of talking about architecting large React applications, I wrote a new talk about style components. And I just started accepting every single conference invite that came my way and also submitted CFPs and started talking about style components everywhere, right? Like on, at every single conference I was invited to, I would speak about style components and why it's, why it's good and how we invented it. And I think that's when a lot of the conversation around CSS and JS really kicked off. Um, yeah. Not to say that I kicked it off, it, it, had, it had already long been kicked off, right? Like the first version of, style, of, of CSS and JS was built in 2014, November 2014. Um, <laughs> but just me going to all of these conferences and putting that word in people's mind and being like, hey, style components exists, CSS and JS exists, it's a thing, you can use it, it might be good. Um, just started people sort of thinking about it, right? And even considering the idea in their head and being like, huh, we run into some of the same problems that he's talking about. Yeah. Maybe we should try this thing. Maybe it could be a solution. Um, and that's really when CSS and JS, I feel like, started talk, taking off once, once they started thinking about it and realizing that, hey, this isn't just like random people doing stupid things and putting their CSS and JavaScript. It's about solving problems that many people had. Now, I, I want to kind of like talk about some of the, more like this, the, the open source side of things. And I know that as of the last version, I think it was like version four, you'd made a point of saying that you had not really touched anything 
uh, on the code base. Like all of the all of the additions, all of the performance upgrades, like all of that stuff, all the new documentation uh, was all by contributors and maintainers. And so that's a pretty big feat. I mean, to be able to go from like this thing that you're you know continuing to, like, regularly talking about and trying to get people on board with to shifting to like not being involved at all in the like major version of it what was that transition like um, was it hard to let go of control or um, how did you direct people as they were kind of coming in and gaining interest in your library so initially i did a lot of the work with glenn together on style components and obviously turning our first like the, the very first version of style components when i announced style components at, at react and l in 2016 um the very first version was a huge mess. It like the the package was like two hundred kilobytes, I think, because we literally <laughs> we literally took post CSS, which is meant to be run locally with Node, and we ripped out all of the Node specific parts and made it run in the browser to process your CSS, which is a completely insane idea, right? Like you would never do that nowadays. However, at the time, we really just wanted to get a prototype out to see what people would even think before we spent any time engineering it any better. Yeah, and so. That first version was really bad. And so there was, we knew it was bad and there was lots of cleanup to be done. And so we got to work on the cleanup after the launch. And also a lot of what makes open source projects popular is good documentation and lots of help. Um, so initially a lot of my time, just like with React Boilerplate, was spent on helping people with the library and writing good documentation and creating a documentation website and like all of this sort of more or less tedious work that doesn't have anything to do with specifically coding on the project, right? And it's it's not tedious because I enjoy it, but like sort of that sort of like um, non-coding work that is required to make something good. Yeah, it's not as it's not as fun as like like you know turning on some metal, like plugging in and just writing code. Yeah, like exactly. for for whatever reason, like writing words about code is just not as fun. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's it's actually kind of funny when I when. Before, even long before React Boilerplate got popular, a bunch of, like, some people were using it. I won't say a bunch because it was literally, like, five. But some people were using it. And I, whenever somebody posted any question in the React Boilerplate issue tracker, I would post a really comprehensive answer. And the questions wouldn't be, like, how do I use React Boilerplate? They would be, like, how do I use React? How do I use Redux? How do I use Redux Saga? Why am I using Immutable.js? Why do I have this bug in my app with Immutable.js and Redux Saga? Why doesn't this work? Why doesn't that work? It was all of these questions and I would answer every single one of them. And that was a big big reason um, of how I built a great community around React Boilerplate. I think style components, I'm still intimately involved in um, nowadays. So I, I don't code as much anymore, but I work mm-hmm. a bunch on, on like, what are we going to do? I review PRs sure. and I work on the website a bunch. However, React Boilerplate... I've completely handed off to an amazing team of developers. So there's like still, I think, seven people actively working as the core team. And that's not even like contributors. Oh, wow. There's still tons of tons of contributors. But like seven people working actively on React, React Boilerplate, pushing updates every week, like doing stuff all the time, updating it, yeah. implementing new technologies, like trying different things. And the reason that happened is because I was just so focused on building a community around it and like getting people engaged with the project, even if it meant answering stupid questions about React that I knew the answer to, right? Like, I was happy to do that. And it meant that people would come back and they would keep using React Boilerplate and they would start contributing eventually, right? They would be like, oh, I found this bug or oh, I had this idea or what do you think about this library or what do you think about that library? And then it's really just a matter of picking out who who, who, who to sort of, who should sort of steer the project, right? So you're looking for, yeah. you know, lots of contributions and sort of people that have been around for a while. But really it starts with, being there yeah. and building that community. Now, I know a lot of people would would balk at that, right? They, they put this open source library out into the world and then people are bunch asking a bunch of unrelated questions. Um, and so they'd probably be like, oh, that's irrelevant. Like close the issue, like slam the door in their face. But you took an op- the opposite approach, which is just like, hey, I'm just going to be as helpful as possible. And like, hopefully that will like garner interest in, you know, in the community. Uh, leave the door open. And then, you know, people will kind of see us as experts and helpful and will want to get involved in in this. Um, was that was that conscious or were you just kind of like excited to, to, to be a part of anything at the time? Mostly the, the latter. I was mostly just excited that, that people were actually using my thing and I wanted to help them. I also think that there's sort of there's nuances to everything, right? And trade-offs. Like nowadays, we can't answer every single start components question that anybody yep. has because we know that the library is really good, right? And we know that there's... yeah. Very few bugs. 
I'm not going to say no because there's always bugs, but it's like very few. And so most <laughs> of the time when people have issues, it's with their app or with their usage. And so sure. we do actually close issues now that are questions. And we do still respond, I think, most of the time. But sometimes we just say, sorry, we don't have time to to debug your app. Yeah. Please go ask somebody else or try and debug it yourself. Or here's some pointers on how you could start debugging it. Um, so it doesn't scale endlessly, but especially in the early stages of a project, when you like the early adopters, early adopters are fickle beings, right? Like they, they want to be <laughs> on the cutting, cutting edge of stuff, but at the yeah. same time, they also don't want to bleed. And so if you make them bleed and then don't help them, if, if you sort of let them bleed out and be like, uh, oh, I'm dying. And you're like, okay, die. Goodbye. <laughs> then they're going to stop using your thing because they can, they're early adopters. So they, they'll very easily yeah. adopt new things. And so, and they'll just as easily leave them. And so you're sort of shepherding those early adopters to turn into your advocates. You're sort of mm-hmm. helping them be, be successful with your project. And in all fairness, when they give you feedback, most of the time it's going to be something with your library, right? Like to be completely honest, lots of the early feedback was like bugs in the style components or React boilerplate or things sure, that just weren't sure. ideal. Like that's also good to know. But also you just want to help them so they keep using your project yeah. because those are the people that will then talk to other people about your project and like whether they should use it yeah. or not. And like it'll that'll sort of steamroll into a much bigger audience. Interesting. So it's not it's not something that's you know infinitely sustainable, but it is critical in kind of getting that early adoption and um getting more people on board to then kind of be that to other people to kind of help at the kind of adjacent parts of your of your library. Exactly. So now you I think I just saw a tweet from you just recently where you had y'all announced uh, version five, five, oh, and the the big headline is that it's just way the hell faster on like all <laughs> regards. Yeah. So tell me a little bit about uh, five. So essentially start components version five is a complete rewrite of the initial of the like core style sheet engine up to version five we'd improved lots of things so style components got faster every single major version release and even lots of releases in between but we were still using the initial style sheet engine that we wrote to keep track of all of the components and eject their css and we realized that with the new apis we'd introduced and some of the changes we'd made lots of the implementation details of that style sheet engine weren't necessary anymore and in fact if we could get rid of them and refactor that that it could potentially speed up the library, which is exactly what happened. We actually completely rewrote our stylesheet engine. Well, I say we, but I didn't actually do that. That was mostly Phil. I just <laughs> gave feedback. Um, Phil and Phil and Evan are awesome. Um, at at Phil PL and at probably up there, the two main people working on style components at the moment, and they essentially rewrote our stylesheet engine from scratch with our new requirements in mind and with everything that we've learned about performance, because we also spend a lot of time. That, that, that's a different topic, but you can optimize performance for JavaScript engines. And usually you don't need to do that because in your apps, that's not going to be the bottleneck. Never, ever, right? Yeah. But for libraries like React and style components, those code paths are very hot. And so if you can actually optimize them so that engines can run them faster, it can make a big difference for your performance. And so that's what we learned over time. But the old style engine wasn't really well written for that purpose. Like you couldn't really optimize gotcha. it for engines. Um, it, it, it had lots of uh, incidental state that was hard to refactor. And so we just scrapped everything and started from scratch. And that took a long time. But then we, once we did that, now everything is much faster. And also React has gotten sure. much faster. And now with hooks, we have less um, context consumers. So reconciliation is faster. And so rendering is faster. And just everything is way faster now with version 5. And so now with version 5, we're probably the fastest or at least on par with every other fast CSS and JS library. That's interesting. I love I love this uh, this journey where you know version one you just push out this you know two hundred plus kilobyte library, <laughs> and then as you uh, as you get more use cases to kind of like make these decisions around, uh, you're able to optimize it, um, but with like from data. Not like this hypothetical, like, oh, well, it should be fast if we, you know, take this route or the other route. You're just kind of like, you put the big slab out there and you kind of like whittle away at it, you know, over time. Exactly. I always say there's three steps to successful open source libraries. The first step is you make it work. You build the first prototype (laughs) and you see if people like it. Because if people don't like it, there's no point in going further. Right. The second step is making it right. The first version you prototyped, the API won't be perfect. You won't have covered all the all, all the use cases. There'll be lots of lots of edge cases and bugs. So the second step is making it right, making the API good, fixing all the bugs, fixing all the edge cases. And then the third step 
is making it fast. Once you've done that, you can actually spend time on performance. You can actually spend time on making it super fast and performant and so that it covers every use case out there. To be fair, oftentimes step two and three happen like almost at the same time. Like it's, but you do have to make it work first and then do the rest of the stuff. And at Style Components, we focused a lot on making it work and then a lot more on making it right and then a lot more on performance, but we're still doing all of them, right? Like there's, yeah, it, yeah. it's not discrete steps, but like there should be, like that order sort of makes sense. Yeah, yeah. I mean, in, in a way, it's almost like a loop, right? And that that you keep coming around to and you just have to do the, the, the making it work is the, the first most important thing and then you get to the others. But it's really this, like you're constantly doing, you, you have to add a new API and you kind of start that that whole loop over again. Exactly. So in the meantime, you have, you, you know, you've been, you're, so you're working on style components and uh, you, you start working on Spectrum, which is a kind of open source, uh, open chat client for, for online communities. Um, what, what brought you there? So this is another funny luck story. <laughs> After, so I was at ThinkMill and I, uh, Glenn and I invented style components and it started taking off. And then one day, um, a guy named Bryn Jackson reached out to me um, and was like, hey, we're using style components, but we're having these issues in our app and we're not sure how to resolve them. And I'd, I'd known Bryn, I'd known of Bryn for a long time. Uh, Bryn is an awesome designer um, and an awesome human. And he's uh, he used to record the, the Design Details podcast um, yeah. uh, together with Brian Lovin. And so Brian Lovin and Bryn Jackson were probably... Within the 10 first people I followed on Twitter, they were. Like, like they were <laughs> literally within the, t- the first 10 people that I ever followed on Twitter. And so I'd been following them for a long time. I knew we were. And so I was like, hey, Bryn, I'm a huge fan of your work. If you give me access to your app, I'll take a look. And he was like, cool, great. That's awesome. Thank you very much. And he gave me access to the GitHub repo. And I looked at the GitHub repo and it said, Spectrum, a home for the SpecFM community. And SpecFM is their podcast network. And I looked at that. Yeah, we're, we're on it. I know, I know. I yeah. I know. <laughs> so go listen to the Design Details podcast. It's awesome. Great show. Um, Great show. <laughs> yeah. um, and I went, wow, that would be super useful for the Style Components community and for the React Boilerplate community because we'd just been using yeah, we'd sort of been using Gitter, but not really because it's sort of not the best app. And I wanted something that was search indexed, and I wanted something that was sort of findable on Google. So I wouldn't end up answering the same questions every five minutes. And they started building that, but for their community. And I looked at the app and I was like, look, I'm going to fix your issues, but what if we did this more general? <laughs> what if we built this in a way where it's a platform for every open source community out there to talk to each other? And they looked at me and went, huh, that's interesting. And so we talked about it a bunch and then decided to make a company out of it. And so we founded Spectrum. And that's when I left my job at ThinkMill too. And so we started Spectrum, we raised a little bit of money so we could pay our bills and started working on Spectrum. And we turned it into a real thing. It exists, um, people use it. Uh, I think we have about, nowadays, I think we have about 400 active communities on there. Wow. Many of which are very big, many of which are many thousands of people, because that's sort of what the platform is optimized for. If there, if, if you have yeah. many thousands of people in a community, you can't really just have one chat room anymore. And so you have channels and threads and stuff. Anyways, and we built this thing and lots of people used it. And then uh, one and a half years later, and there's a whole story for the journey there that's not super relevant, but um, one and a half years later, we got acquired by GitHub. And so GitHub bought Spectrum and Half a year before that, we open sourced Spectrum. Um, so the whole code base is open source. It's still open source. It still exists. You can go to uh, spectrum.chat and you can go to github.com slash with Spectrum and you can see the entire source code for the app, like the entire thing. Wild. All <laughs> 150 or 200,000 lines of code. The entire thing is one big monorepo. You can look at all of it. Unbelievable. So how did that make you feel? Like So I know this is kind of like a really minor part in the story, but like, how did it make you feel to open source like an entire application? I mean, y- you've been talking about like open sourcing, you know, little libraries or open sourcing um, kind of bigger things like React Boilerplate and style components. But you get to this point where you're working on this application. It's a it's a product, you know, there's a, it, there's a business behind it. Um, and you get to open source the whole freaking thing. Like, 
how does that feel at, at that point in your career? Um, I really pushed for it. Uh, it was a long discussion, though. We talked about it for a long time for various reasons because there's upsides, but there's also downsides to, to open sourcing your entire product. Yeah. If you open source your entire product, anybody can run your product, which means they, they technically don't need to be paying you anymore. Yeah. <laughs> which doesn't mean that they won't, right? There's lots of successful open source companies out there um, like Sentry uh, that make money by hosting their open source service, essentially. Mm -hmm. And particularly for Spectrum, we weren't super worried about somebody else running Spectrum because it it was very... like the, the advantage of Spectrum is that it's a single platform for all of these different communities. So you have one, one login yeah. and you have one set of notifications and you get one email and like it's all just one thing rather than being spread around 15 forums. And so somebody else running a Spectrum instance didn't worry as, as much because it would require a lot of network effects to take off. And sure. if that happened, like if somebody had actually done that, which nobody did, some, some people run their own Spectrum instances, but none of them have taken off as much as ours. And we're super excited for them, right? Like if they can make that work, that's awesome, right? Like I'm super excited for somebody to be using the product and to get something better in their life because we've built something, right? Yeah. That's an awesome feeling. What we were more worried about is that our code base is shit. <laughs> and I'm sorry for my phrasing there, but our code base is really bad. It's just a classic startup code base. There is... yeah. Tons of duplication. It's super badly architected. There's code yeah. everywhere. You're making it work. We're making it work, but we, we didn't make the code right, right? Like we were focused on making yeah. the product right. We didn't care about the code. And so the code base is horrible, right? It's, it's absolutely crap. It's not how I would ever write an actual React app if I had time to spend, but we didn't. We were a startup. We had to just keep pushing our features and building things until uh, we reached product market fit. And so... We never had time to clean anything up. We had, I think, I'm probably not exaggerating when I say we had 20 different flex components that all did the same thing, right? Like, and they were just <laughs> spread throughout the code base. We had no design system to speak of. Every button was a custom. Actually, our, our button system was, was great. Our button system, that was the one thing that we did well. But all the other components were just constantly duplicated. There was no system of components to speak of. We're just creating everything from scratch every single time, which slowed us down a lot, right? Like in hindsight, that's a really bad idea. It's much yeah. smarter to spend a lot of time architecting the thing, or not a lot of time, but more time architecting the thing and re removing that duplication because you're going to end up moving faster. But at the time, of course, when you're in the weeds of things, when you're actually trying to, when you're more focused on how are we going to make money? How are we going to pay rent? How are we going to get more users? Like when you're worried about those things, you're not worried about architecting your stupid React app, yeah. right? Like that's a means to an end. It's not the end itself. <laughs> well, it's like even, I mean, among those concerns is just keeping the database up, right? Like, <laughs> like when you have a product like that's so important um oh you have no you know, idea versus <laughs> that's a whole different thing so the thing is none of us were really back-end devs when you started out Bryn and brian could code javascript and they knew a little mm -hmm. bit of react at the start but i was really the tech guy and i'd never really built a production backend. <laughs> that must have been exciting it was it, i mean it was scary and exciting at the same time. It was scary because I knew that we'd make mistakes and that we'd mess up where we shouldn't. But at the same time, it was also exciting because I knew we'd learn a lot. And we did yeah. learn an immense amount. Like those one and a half years, I learned so much every single day about building a product, yeah. about backend stuff, about front end stuff, about everything. Um, but so we'd never really built a backend. So our backend is even worse than our front end. I actually think that the backend is architected well. I think the way we have we have this sort of like uh, message messaging system where we have an event queue that like message message queue that lots of messages go in and then we have worker service that sort of pick off messages and like process them to send email notifications push notifications um, compute notification data like whatever cron jobs whatever you have anyways but we used a database or I should say I chose a database that wasn't very good. <laughs> and so we had lots of availability incidents where I would have to get up in the middle of the night and debug our database without any debugging information because I was literally the most technical person on the team. And so and that's not to, that that that's not a knock on Brian and Bryn at all. They were just sure, as, sure. they were getting up just as much and tried to help, but they just like we we needed all hands on deck, right? Like we needed yeah. everybody to be able to figure this out. So there well, were lots the three of three of you. <laughs> yeah. So there were lots of sleepless nights and lots of long days where we tried to figure out stupid availability issues. And again, it's another thing I learned, right? Like maybe don't use a cutting edge database. Maybe use something that's been battle tested for a while. Because if that thing has any issues, 
you're in sh- deep shit. Like that's bad. Yeah. Don't don't use yeah. any cutting edge databases. It's not a good idea. Ninety nine percent of the time, unless you know what you're doing. Like there is database experts. They're the ones writing the databases, and they know what they're doing, and they know which use case yeah. they should use various databases for and stuff like. And I'm not talking to them, right? But if you're if you really have no idea of backend developer, just use Postgres or MySQL, right? Like just. Don't go anywhere else. It's not worth it. It's just well, it's, not worth it. it. It's hard to anticipate, right? Like, Ex- you know, when yeah. you're, you're building this thing, you didn't realize, you know, how quickly it would catch on for people. Yeah. And you didn't realize how, or you, you might not have known the scale that you were going to have to achieve really quickly. Um, and so you, you didn't really have the, the information to make a, a more, I don't know, like structured or like reasoned decision about database. Yeah, of course. At the same time, we also didn't know whether our database would scale or not. Right, and it turns out it wouldn't. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Which now I'm not saying that the database is at is, is, is at fault, right? Like we also didn't know how to write efficient queries and stuff. But even when we learned all of this stuff and made our database queries better and implemented in the indices and whatever, the database would still crash, right? Because fundamentally, the yeah. way we used it wasn't the way it really worked. Mm-hmm. And had we just used a very battle battle tested database that lots of people were using then there would have been a lot of documentation around performance, around what you should and should not do and how to implement things. And we would have been able to scale a lot higher than we actually ended up doing. And you can never know that yeah. when you when you haven't actually used the thing or when it's not very widely used. Like, I know that MySQL scales because GitHub uses MySQL exclusively. So you can <laughs> scale MySQL to work for the 50th biggest website on the planet, right? Yep. And at that point, you have people working on a database exclusively, so you, you don't have to worry about it anymore. Right, so if you sure, use MySQL, sure. you can be sure that it's going to work out, and that that's not going to be your biggest problem. Yeah, the solutions are already documented. Exactly. So at this, like at this point, you've you know you've kind of gone this like you've had this like really like rapid trajectory into you know open source uh, product, you know backend, and I don't know. I always have this belief that a lot of times developers today are too isolated. They're too focused on like you know, just the front end, right? Or just the back end or, you know, only product. And I feel like your experience gave you an opportunity to be extremely well-rounded, to see things from top to to bottom. How did, how do you feel like that improved your work as a front end, you know, open source developer? I think it really gave me an appreciation for all of the tools that I'm using every day. For example, we take it for granted but React very seldomly has any bugs. <laughs> yeah. I don't think I've ever had an issue where React was at fault. It was always my usage of it. But React is super stable, super solid. And we just take that for granted, right? I take that for granted every single day, but that is amazing. It's a really complex project, especially nowadays, yeah. with lots of moving parts. And it just works really, really, really well. And it's sort of having that experience with the backend really taught me that you need to be very careful about a certain set of tools that is very hard to switch out. For example, whether you use underscore or Lodash really doesn't matter because <laughs> there's 15 different implementations of it, right? It really does not matter. Sure. But whether you use React or you use Angular doesn't matter a lot because it's not as easy to switch away from. You cannot easily switch away yeah. from your front-end framework. And so for those technologies that are really hard to switch, you need to spend more time thinking about which one you're going to use and why and what they're good at, what they're bad at, whether they're implemented well, whether they're managed well, all of these things, how big the community is around it. Whereas other libraries that you can very easily switch out, again, Lodash, for example, it doesn't matter, right? Which one you use really does not matter because if it doesn't work, you just switch it out for a different implementation and you're done, right? There's no, it's not a lot of work to go from one to the other. Um, And I didn't really think about that before, at least not in that way. I didn't think about it like, oh, how, how hard is it going to be to switch away from this? I, I just thought, what's the thing that sounds like it could solve my problem, right? Which is, yeah, which works out 80% of the time or maybe 90 or 95% of the time, but the remaining times, it's going to be a huge amount of pain. Yeah, I like that. I like the idea of considering the switchability as a heuristic for, you know, for how important it is to really consider the decision, like how much time you should spend thinking about it. For example... Preact. Preact is a re-implementation of React. It has the exact same API. So trying out Preact is really easy. And switching back to React is really easy. If you have any issues with Preact, <laughs> you can just switch back. It takes like two lines of code in your Webpack configuration and you're done. Like it's it's as simple as that, right? Like there's 
absolutely no problem with doing that. And so trying Preact is a really smart idea because for 99% of use cases, it probably won't make a difference, right? For 99% of apps, it's going to work the exact same as React. And if you have an edge case that Preact doesn't cover or where a library uses something that doesn't work, then just use React again. And there's no big cost to switching. Right? Yeah, yeah. Interesting. So I know that like about a year ago, you wrote a post on your blog, and I just want to mention it before we move on, um, which was all of the things that you would love to have, I guess, decisions that you wish you would have made differently uh, in architecting Spectrum. And so we'll just kind of like leave that there. I'll link it in the show notes. Um, I want to talk about what you're what you're moving toward. You'd mentioned at the beginning of the chat that um, you're going to be moving to Gatsby soon. So tell us about that. So... Gatsby just announced uh, a new thing that they're working on, which is called Blocks. Um, that this was the alpha was announced, I think, one and a half months ago. And Blocks is essentially, I call it a visual editor for your React apps. And what that means is, it lets you drag and drop your own components to create pages, mm. and then you can render those pages in your app, and you get like a. It looks like a design tool, basically. It looks like Figma or Sketch, but you're using your own components and. The amazing thing about Blocks is that it actually edits your code. So hmm. contrary to other tools like Webflow, where, where in Webflow you create your, your website and then it's published via Webflow and then you have a website, yep. with Blocks, you're actually editing your own code. So that means that designers can go in and they can create new marketing pages or new pages in your app from scratch with drag and drop and make them look exactly the way they want to and have exactly hmm. the text that they want to. And then they just submit a pull request. And it's a pull request like any other pull request. Whether they edit it with VS Code or with blocks doesn't make any difference. And so it's a way to tie designers into the development process and to give teams a huge speed boost because rather than passing static images around, designers can now actually just implement the thing themselves. And the only thing mm. developers then have to do is write the plumbing code, right? Which data to fetch and which where, where to pass sure. it and what to render. And in reality, even a lot of that could will and could and will be optim uh, uh, automated in the future. Um, Gatsby has this incredibly smart data pipeline that we will be tying blocks into to even do a lot of the plumbing code automatically. And so I hope yeah. in the future we'll end in a, in a place where you're literally drag and dropping functionality around, right? Like you have a blog list component and you're drop, dropping that onto the page and it automatically creates the whole infrastructure to make a blog work and you can tie it into your, the contentful API or sanity API or whatever CMS you use yeah. you can immediately tie it into that and render your actual blog posts so that's sort of the pitch for blocks and I'm joining Gatsby to work on blocks and Gatsby themes and uh, theme UI and MDX and all sort of the projects that tie into this vision of a visual editor for your React apps that's awesome I uh, I actually just a couple chats ago um, talked with Sunil Pai, and the whole episode was. About I know. I listened to that, and I was like, <laughs> "Blocks is that? Blocks is this? That's exactly what we're going for." Sunil, you're you're gonna be amazed. <laughs> I'm super excited about this because it's 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 necessary, right? Like we we need to make that jump to where we're making the the development and you know content and design uh, cycle more virtuous and not treating it as separate discrete things but allowing more people to contribute uh, in a way that is is meaningful and actually affects the code um, and I'm, I'm just super excited to see see what you all do on that um, I also want to make clear because a lot of people have this um, feedback which is that they say, Right, but there's tools that let me design my components and that output code, but they don't work very well. And yeah. I agree, they don't work very well, which is very well. That's the hardest thing to say for Germans, very well, because it's like the, the two different sounds right after each other. But anyways, when, <laughs> when you study English in, in Austria, when in, in school, because every kid has learned English, they literally make you sit there and say, very well. Very well, very well, <laughs> 50 times. So you get the, the difference. It's the worst, worst word in the English language. Anyways, um, Blocks isn't trying to let you create components visually, right? Like they're not, we're not trying to replace Sketch or Figma or whatever design tool sure. your designers use to design components. What we're trying to let you do is use your existing components to build pages. And that's a much simpler problem to solve because we don't, we don't care which framework you use. We don't care yeah. which CSS and JS library you use. We don't care how your components are built. 
all we care about is that we're going to just put them into a JSX tree and write that to a file. And that's a much simpler yeah, problem. Yeah. And so we can actually do that part reliably. And it's already going to be a huge speed boost for practically any team using React. Um, on top of that, we're also going to be building a component library. So we're currently hiring. If you want to work on this, you should reach out to Kyle Matthews, who's the CEO of Gatsby. Uh, sorry for the pitch. We're, <laughs> we're going to be building a component library of the 50 or 100 most common UI patterns. And it's going to be completely themable, which means you're going to be able to create a React app and then you're going to have 100 pre-made components that are completely themable mm. to your liking. And you can just drag and drop them onto a page to, to add an accordion, a modal, um, a button, a whatever, an, an image header, typography, a nav bar, a footer, whatever UI element that is sort of always the same. Because in reality, websites and web apps have maybe maybe a hundred distinct UI <laughs> patterns, right? Like that's yeah. e like if you go very far, it's a hundred, right? Yeah. And it, but it's always And if you go same. too much further, it's not useful anyway, yeah, exactly. right? Like you're just out in the weeds. You're just kind of, yeah. you know, showing off your chops. Yeah, exactly, exactly. So if we can create this component library of the 100 most common UI patterns that is completely themable and adjustable to your liking, then suddenly blocks becomes even more like you don't even have to use your own components anymore. You can just plug together apps visually Add add some data and you're good to go and you're ready to deploy. Yeah. Right? Um, that's very far future. That's going to take a while until we get there, but that's sort of the vision. And that's why I'm joining because I'm super excited about this, right? Like, this is sorely missing yeah. in the React ecosystem. We don't have yep. this right now and I don't know why. It needs to exist. It should exist. Yeah. We should be working like this. Yeah. And I think that's one thing that, you know, Sunil was saying is, is that you have to have a constraint system to make this work. Exactly. Um, it, it's just too big of a problem to not have additional constraints on top of, you know, React components and, you know, deciding on style library and and limiting the number of components that you make composable in this way. Um, exactly. And Gatsby really does seem like a good fit because you you have all of those constraints in place or possible. And um and I think that it it Gatsby does have such a focus on uh product right? Like making it possible for people to release products quickly. And uh, I think that that is really such a good intersection of all of the, these ideas to, to, to make it really quick and easy for people who have an idea, who have a product to like hook it up and update it and compose these views really quickly, um, you know, given all these like really cool out of the box tools. Yeah, I, I think Sunil even said in that, in that episode, I think he handed on Gatsby should do this. Yeah. He was like, <laughs> yeah, he did. There's like not that many companies that could do it, but if there's one company that's perfectly set up to do it, it's Gatsby. And it's true because they have all of the fundamental pieces in place. They have the expertise in that in that ecosystem. And I mean, the people on that team are brilliant. I'm going to get to work with yeah. Brent Jackson and John Oldtander, who are two of my favorite humans in the React ecosystem. They're <laughs> super awesome. And that has me even more excited because they're super smart. And so I know whatever happens, we're going to build a cool thing and it's going to be awesome. Awesome. Well, Max... This was exciting. Thank you for sharing everything that you shared with us, uh, giving us your knowledge, telling us about your experience in open source and kind of how all of that has brought you to what you're going to be working on next in blocks. Uh, I'm super excited for you. I'm super excited to use your work, um, you know, inside of Gatsby. Uh, it's going to be awesome. Anything that you want to uh, leave us with? How do, how do people uh, find you? How do people get to know you better? So I mostly use Twitter. If you go to Twitter at MXSTBR, I'm sure it'll be in the show notes. I'm just gonna force. I'm, I'm just gonna force you to put it into the show notes. Um, <laughs> no, you, you can follow me there. It's it's where I share most of my thoughts on a day to day basis. I've also been experimenting with Instagram. It's the same handle. Um, okay. I don't post any build pictures, but I do stories every day of like my day and what I'm what I'm thinking about and stuff like that. It's it's kind of an. In, I like stories. I think that it's like it's a joke by now that that all the social media platforms have stories. Like it's the same yeah. UI every time. But I actually really <laughs> like that format. It's really engaging and it's, it's really great. fun to create. I actually, I, I wish Twitter had stories. If Twitter had stories, I would be happy. I hope they do that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's it. Yeah, that's interesting. Like how does a story, okay, okay, we're kind of getting into the weeds, but like how does a story differ from a tweet? That's the, that's the thing. That a story is ephemeral and sort of more private because it's not f around forever. Right? It's only seen by the people that are looking at the thing right gotcha. now. And it's visual. Yeah, it's yeah, much yeah. more visual than a tweet. You're like, yeah, you can post a video, but are you going to post a video of you, of a selfie of yourself, like standing in front of your laptop? No, like you, you're not going to do that on Twitter, <laughs> right? Like, why would you do that? But on Instagram stories, that totally, or in stories, that totally makes sense, right? Like, there's, 
a wealth of content there that I want to create that's super fun to create yeah. that I don't really want to put on Twitter like that like in a tweet that doesn't make any sense anyways that's a totally different story uh, follow me on Twitter awesome Max it's always it's always a pleasure cannot wait to see uh, what you and the Gatsby team uh, make this year thank you for having me this has been awesome thanks for listening for links and notes visit reactpodcast.com slash 84 if you like this show, there's a fast, free way to demonstrate your support. Leave us a review on iTunes. It's the best way for you to let me know what you think we're doing right and what we can improve. Two to three minutes of your time helps us make the best show we possibly can. As always, links and show notes for all episodes are available at reactpodcast.com. This episode was edited by Mikhail Delport. It was produced by Mikhail Delport and Sarah Jackson at Spec, a network to help you level up in design and development. Check out spec.fm for other shows that are sure to fast track your career. I'm your friend, Chantastic. Thanks for listening. We'll be in your ears again next week. Music